Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, December 12th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero. This week we're covering a fish from one of my favorite groups. It's an ancient behemoth of a creature. We're talking about the pallid sturgeon. And I'm very honored to introduce a very special guest for our 100th episode, the director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We've got Martha Williams. I'm also really pleased to welcome Wayne Nelson Stasny. He's the project leader with our Missouri River Recovery Office and a big pallid sturgeon fan. We are so very excited to learn more about this amazing fish and a very warm welcome to both of you. Thank you, Katrina and Guy. And I have to add in that I am a huge fan of Fish of the Week. So I feel like it's a special honor to join you on this 100th episode. Awesome. Yeah. So Martha, of all the fish, why are you excited to talk about this one, the pallid sturgeon? To be honest, it was hard to choose. And I bet I'm not the only one who has a hard time choosing a favorite. But the pallid sturgeon is just so special in so many different ways on all these different levels. So one, I think there are these crazy, cool, prehistoric fish. So that they are, they really are dinosaurs. They look like dinosaurs. They've been around, they've been swimming around since the dinosaurs. So they're really cool looking. I love what they represent and that they thrive in turbid waters. They're kind of an underdog that they're so endangered, so squarely in the work we do at the Fish and Wildlife Service. And then I think the things that limit them are what we're working on across the country, too. So some of their challenges represent some of the bigger challenges we're all facing within the service as well. They're just really cool. That's right, Katrina. They're super cool. That's a good answer. Okay, so folks listening can really get a feel for what this fish looks like and why it looks the way that it does. We'd love if one of you could help us imagine what it might be like to have a sturgeon in your hands. And also, if one of you could humor us and imagine being a pallid sturgeon and what that might be like from their point of view. Yeah, first of all, they can be really big. They have these long, flattened snouts, and they have these long, slender tails. And instead of scales, they have these rows of bony plates adding to that kind of prehistoric dinosaur look. Their mouths are toothless and are underneath their snout for sucking in small fishes and vertebrates from the bottom of the river and that they can weigh up to 80 pounds and grow six feet tall. So lots more to say about them, but Wayne, what do you have to add? So I love to try and put myself in the head and mind of a pallid sturgeon. And and the last time I released one of those big behemoths of creatures into the river, I tried to imagine what does that fish know? from millions of years of evolution, as you said, since the time of dinosaurs. And somewhere in Montana, maybe on the Yellowstone or the Powder River or the Tongue or the Marias, which we gave names to. But in the time of dinosaurs, 70 million years ago, when T-Rex and Triceratops were still walking around the plains of what is today Montana, 
an egg was laid in the muddy waters. And if you were that egg, you'd sit there for seven to 10 days, hoping that the water would keep you clear of the shifting sands, the mud. And then you'd drift hundreds of miles, if not even a thousand miles. We talk about lateral lines in fishes, the ampullae of Lorenzi. Throughout their head and body, they can sense the currents of this river as it's shifting. But also probably more importantly for a young fish just having absorbed its yolk sac, now I can sense prey items, just the weak electrical signal of an insect coming up out of the shifting sands. And Martha, as you said, that vacuum mouth comes down and you can taste it. Mm -hmm. You've sensed it both with those electrical organs, four barbells hanging down. You think about the Missouri and Mississippi river systems, Native American villages. It could be the Osage, the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara. Euro-Americans show up and for the first time, they discover the Missouri River as Joliet and Marquette were floating down the Mississippi. They talked about whole islands coming down the river and the river would not become clear again. And then George Fitch talks about a river too thick to drink and too thin to plow. This is the environment you live in where you can't see, but you're relying upon those sensory organs. So that's me trying to get into that mind of that fish and certainly not adapted to where they are, but an incredibly fascinating fish. Hey, Wayne, I would add in trying to get in the pallid's mind, it's that innate proverbial sense of survival, right? That they're, they are so endangered. They're so few and yet they have survived. They figure it out. So to make to dig a little deeper, you know, we've covered species from the genus Asapenser on this show, which I feel like that's the more common one that people are familiar with. Your white sturgeon, your green sturgeon, they go out into the ocean. But we're talking about Scaphorhynchus here, and there's three species in there. You got your pallid sturgeon, but you also have your shovel nose and you have your Alabama sturgeon. And they got that really ultra thin caudal peduncle as well as that more scoop, spade-like, boat-like snout. What is it about this Missouri-Mississippi river system that has caused them to be pushed in this evolutionary trajectory? Why do they look like that in particular, and what use does that have? When you think about that system, another quote I like to talk about, the Missouri River, you never knew if you were going to be farming corn or catfish because that channel mm-hmm. was always shifting. Loads of set- sediment. When you look at the some of the historic data and think about the Missouri River system, 500 million metric tons of sediment delivered at the mouth at St. Louis on an annual basis, pre-dam, pre-channelization. All of that building up things like the Delta. So all of that coming down the system, the pallets, that scoop, very slender caudal peduncle area, they needed to be adapted to living in a river system, not only full of obstructions, but fast moving and sometimes slow moving current. And to be able to not only find food, but to avoid predation. The bony rows of scoots that Martha mentioned that look like dinosaurs really sharpen their youth. They get big enough where they don't necessarily need them as adults, but they're still there. So that they are evolved in a very turbulent, very shifting environment. And then also the migration routes they have. We know today, literally hundreds of miles, some of that's been obstructive, could have been thousands of miles. We often think of Salmonids and how they migrate. Pallid sturgeon, we see migrate incredible distance when afforded the opportunity, and then to find mates out in that system. I think that's right, Wayne. One of the reasons why I chose pallid sturgeon and why I think they're so cool 
is that there are all these people, rightly so, who are fascinated by migration of big game and or salmon or salmonids. But there are species like the pallid sturgeon who we know migrate 150 miles. We don't know would they migrate farther if they could. It's just this amazing migration story that how do they figure out how to do that? And why do they do that? Why are these guys migrating like this? Right. They migrate those distances to spawn. One of the theories is they need to find the right substrate, which would be very rare in a river system like this. With those eggs, they're adhesive for four to seven days. That river is constantly moving. The bed is constantly shifting. There is a spot on the Yellowstone River where we know year after year, about four miles up from the mouth of the river, we can consistently find congregations of pallid sturgeon where we know it for decades. They've probably been going there for literally thousands, if not millions of years. The conditions are just right. And then to find each other in a system that is so big, so diverse with so many species. So this fish has a really large range. We find adults like as far south as like the Atchafalaya system down in Louisiana, and then up into like the Yellowstone River up there in Montana. Do you know, are these a single spawning population or are there distinct populations of the pallid sturgeon that occur throughout the range? When you look at the map of their distribution, their historic range and stretching all the way down to actual atrophilation. Oh my gosh. (laughs) A long way. Right. And then you look where they're missing now. What happened to that connection? And when did they lose that? And so as they lost that connection, did they develop distinctions, Wayne, that's such that they would be distinct population segments? I would think so, because it's been so long since they have been connected. Fortunately, we have some great geneticists working on this, both in terms of which crosses do we make in the hatcheries. Right now, what we know based on the science we have today, there is an upper basin population of pallids genetically and a lower basin genetic population of pallids. So we do work in within our hatchery system to keep those distinct. Only upper basin fish go into Montana and we see some divergence, if you will, there. Still the same species, but definitely some differences genetically that we can detect. I think it's pretty amazing how much fish move. And I think a lot of times people don't really realize that. And these fish share the waters with a lot of other cool species too. But all across the U.S., we've got things in the water that impede migration. And maybe we can talk a little bit about what some of those things are and yeah, what Fish and Wildlife is doing about that. Great segue to our Fish Passage program. And With a bipartisan infrastructure law, we just got a huge infusion investment into our fish passage program, over $200 million for the next five years. We've gotten over 40 projects for this year alone. Why they're so important, it's actually giving nature a chance to heal itself. I know I've gotten to visit a couple of these fish passage projects, whether on the Cheat River, outside of the Heinz Wildlife Refuge in Montana. When you remove these structures that have prohibited fish from migrating, this is what I did. It's amazing. So you remove these barriers and they immediately come back and migrate. How do they still know how to do that when they've been stopped for so long and then you remove the barrier and they're 
right there. You're helping these species reconnect and migrate again, but you're also helping the communities. You're helping water quality, creating these jobs. It's this cascading event when we're able to invest in these projects that we haven't gotten to in a long time. So it's pretty exciting. And a lot of times they are tied to infrastructure too. I mean, there's a lot of good benefits in a lot of different ways. In a lot of different ways. That's right. It helps with flooding, water quality. And then for these fish, that sense of wonder when you get a chance to see them and learn about them, the more you learn, I think the more amazing they are. Do you have an example of a project that's happening or has happened recently that benefits this fish specifically, whether it's through the bill funding or otherwise? I would talk about one in Montana. Fish go up the Yellowstone annually and they run into intake diversion dam quite a ways up the system. An intake diversion dam was built in the early 1900s, basically to supply water supply. And for the last 20 years, a partnership between the Bureau of Rec, the Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the local irrigation districts, basically what ended up being was new headworks on the irrigation canal so that sturgeon, as they drift down, wouldn't end up in that canal heading to irrigate some of the important crops in eastern Montana. And just recently, this past spring, in the spring of 2022, for the first time, a two-mile channel around that diversion dam was opened almost immediately. As Martha, as you said, fish still know how. They started using it. We saw hatchery fish that were stocked 20 years ago go up the Yellowstone, use that channel up into the Powder River 150 miles and spawn for the first time. So quite literally, it has been a century since pallid sturgeon had ready access to some of those ancestral, if you will, migration routes and spawning grounds that we haven't seen. So just a tremendous success, not only for the fishes, but because it worked with partners, it worked with communities, all able to celebrate together with the local agricultural interest and people farming along that river system. That's right, Wayne. I think there's still lots of work yet to do for pallids and around intake dam, but this was a big start. And it's also a really good example of how many other federal agencies we need to work with to do something like this, and then also working with the community. And that's the place where I first got to follow pallets with radio telemetry. When I first heard the beep, 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 I almost Mm -hmm. fell out of the boat. I was like, no way. Is this really a wild sturgeon that had been tagged? Because think about it, they're in this turbid water. They're not easy to spot. Was that your first encounter with a sturgeon or do you guys have a first encounter sturgeon story that you could share? It was my first encounter with a sturgeon and those big wide rivers on eastern Montana that I just love. Beautiful. I grew up in southeast South Dakota and We'd cross the river to get to family across the border in Nebraska. And as a five and six-year-old, I'd stare into those waters and wonder what was down there. As a graduate student studying paddlefish, another ancient, almost dinosaur-like fish, one day in that very same spot where I used to stare down as a youth, one day I was pulling in about a 50-pound paddlefish, and right next to it was a 25-pound female pallid sturgeon. It was actually the first fish in the Gavin's Point National Fish Hatchery, but I think legacy and generations and tying that all together, how that came together for me, an incredible experience. And I'm thankful every day that I still get to work too. 
hopefully keep that sense of wonder going for future river folks. You mentioned paddlefish and blue suckers, all these other species that have the same needs as pallid. So that if you address the habitat, the challenges needed for pallid sturgeon, you're also helping all of these other species that are also really cool too. And often are the underdogs in these turbid systems. That's a great point, Martha. Throughout the river system in the range of pallid sturgeon, things have been changed for different reasons and different places. One of the things we're seeing an example of conservation efforts towards the broader array of fish and wildlife in the lower part of the Missouri River where a lot of channelization was done. We're now experiencing where levee districts are saying, what if we give the river a little bit more room to to be itself? But yes, yeah, so can we set a levee setback, give our land more protection? And a couple of years ago, during a flood where a levee setback had taken place down in southeast Nebraska, we were out on the floodplain, not the big 70, 80 pounders, but young blue catfish, all kinds of chub species, native fishes were abounding literally within the willows that were being flooded and affording protection to the broader community, if you will, because of those conservation moves to to not only help the fish and wildlife, but in turn pallid sturgeon, but also to help better enhance the lives of people living along the river. Those nature-based solutions. I love that, Katrina, allowing the river to be itself and I think we're learning that in so many different places. By doing that, fish get to be themselves too. I like that. We're talking about a species here that lives in a river. Like Wayne was saying, you look down and these aren't like the mountain creeks where I grew up where you can actually see the fish hanging out in the water. You don't know what's down there. And so there's no way, unless you happen to hook into a fish like this, that you're going to see what's going on. So what are you guys doing as part of the Fish and Wildlife Service to get people excited about this fish and maybe be able to interact with it, not in the wild, but still see it and see how cool they are? We're doing this podcast too. So that's good. We're doing this podcast. <laughs> Bump and we're the telling... podcast on the podcast. <laughs> And we're right. We're telling its story, explaining how the sturgeon migrates these many miles and that it is endangered. And it does matter because what supports the sturgeon supports all these other species and communities and provides jobs. It's like this interconnected web, you give nature the chance to heal itself and you see all these cascading impacts that are really cool. So yeah, how do we tell the story better and more if you don't get to see them in the cold water rivers or streams? Every year we do watershed festival here in my local community where I live along the river. School children, middle schoolers come out. We talk about adaptations. We might have 10 or 20 fish, big mouth buffalo. Oh, I love those. Red horse, some of the suckers, gold eyes. <laughs> I pull a little eight inch fish out of the tank and talk about the vacuum mouth, the little eye, the scoots. When children hold one of these little fish for the first time and look into eyes that really can't see much, you can see the connection. It enables us to get the public in touch, if you will, with something that almost is untouchable given the habits that it has living in deep, turbid, swift waters that are hard to approach. And I think those hatchery fish are so important too, because we know 
palates live a long time and that they don't reach sexual maturity until they're 15 or 20 years old. So they have long migrations, these long larval drift distances, pretty specific habitat needs, and then they reproduce slowly. Without this hatchery fish, I don't think we would probably be able to, right, Wayne, be pretty hard to keep them from going extinct. So it's squarely on our shoulders, I think, to be thinking through what we need to do to keep them around. And the hatchery fish is one piece of that. Fortunately for our hatchery system, we're talking about a fish that in the upper part of the range, we hadn't seen reproduction really since the 1950s, since some of the last dams on the Missouri River went in. Uh, we were worried about ex, um, extirpation of pallid sturgeon up there. In the early 1990s, uh, we, our hatchery system, both federal and state folks, uh, from states like Montana, from down in Missouri, and, and our federal hatcheries started working with how do we spawn a wild fish such as this that's adapted to uh, the cues from nature, whether it be temperature, turbidity, some of the flow cues that happen out there. They basically unlocked a key there and have been able to keep this fish around for future generations. For the first time, we're seeing some of that reproduction, but also as far as outreach, a great outreach tool, uh, literally Noah's Arcs almost, if you will, an arc really carrying some of the progeny, some of the genetics out there. It's bridging the gap between things like intake bypass, where we're creating the bypass channels, where we're reopening those migration routes, where the levee setbacks could help the species. The other thing our hatchery system has done that's amazing is if we have research questions, for instance, because of their capacity to synchronize the spawning events, can provide us things like one in five day post-hatch larvae that we released all at the same time in a river system and USGS, service crews, other agencies get out there and see where those fish are drifting. Is it tied in with the model? Are the actions we're taking enabling us to move towards recovering the species so that as we bridge that gap, we ultimately realize self-sustaining populations out there someday? This whole right. kind of discussion around age has got me thinking a little bit about that sense of wonder and these fish can get into their 70s or 80s. I mean, they're pretty amazing in that respect. So I don't know if either of you have anything to say about this kind of this longevity. Putting ourselves back into their mindset of what have they seen, right? What did that river feel like, look like 80 years ago? If I think about if walls could talk, what if these river systems could talk? What would they tell us? Which is the whole point, I think, of what we're learning now is how do we go back to allowing them to be more like they were. So if the rivers could talk or the pallid could talk, I'd bet we're all listening. We often think of dendrologists counting tree rings in a tree. Pallids do give us some insight into their longevity. The reason we say at least 80 years is because in the upper basin, some of the specimens that we were able to keep, they're otoliths, the hard bony structures basically in their head. Researchers have cross-sectioned those, but one of the things that pallets have seen, they've seen the nuclear testing. The carbon-14 is imprinted on those otoliths, but it isn't imprinted at their natal origins or when they were born. It's imprinted after that. So the last testing in the 1950s, we know that those pallets that are still swimming in the upper basin today, their original wild broodstock, if you will, have that mark from the last of the radioactive, or basically the nuclear testing. So 
that means they've been around for at least 70, 80 years up there. If you think of it in terms of dendrology, it's like a forest fire scar, if you will, but evidence of them talking. It's not every day. In fact, it's been never so far that we get someone that's top brass, big government official here on the show. Can you talk about some of the aspects of conservation from a political kind of standpoint or from a government standpoint that's beyond the biological? What kind of challenges are you having to deal with that's beyond just the life history and the ecology of this fish? I think it's connecting people to nature, which is what we do, so they care. Aside from the obvious of climate change and the impacts of climate change, it's also realizing how interconnected these systems are. What you do in one place impacts something else. So, for example, with dams, where you put in a dam in one spot, it can impact right one species that then also impacts another species and that it impacts the way the river works and then it impacts the community. All of these systems are, I think, so much more intertwined than we've fully understood or are able to explain to everyone and why people should care is because it impacts them. So I think it's Really, us going from the biology to telling these stories that hit people in the heart and say, oh, this matters. And if we don't do this now, then is it going to be there for the future? It's telling our stories. I know that's simplifying it, but our issues shouldn't be political in nature. It's just these are fundamental needs and issues for us as a people. And so we should be able to cut through that. And I think that's just the challenge of explaining what we do in a world where there, everything's in sound bites. Gotcha. That's a good answer. I was hoping more for something like going after the Paperwork Reduction Act. I think. <laughs> oh, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get why it's there. It frustrated me when I was over at NIMFS. <laughs> I mentioned the 500 million metric tons that used to come to the mouth of the Missouri every year. Something the palate sturgeon has evolved with that they're used to seeing. Today, in recent times, since the dams have been in place, since the bank stabilization, about 50 million metric tons of sediment every year are delivered to the mouth. A major building block for habitat in the Missouri River. But when you think about humans down in New Orleans, when Katrina hit, every year subsidence is hitting coastal wetlands are disappearing and storm surges from hurricanes intensified because of climate change. The Missouri River cannot anymore deliver the basic building blocks to help create those coastal wetlands, which in turn connect community. Rivers are a great example of connecting people, connecting cultures, and really what conservation can do when done right, when we give rivers room to function and to roam with people living alongside them. Oh, that's so well put, Wayne. It's that reminder that rivers, like these other systems, are dynamic by nature. And to allow them to be dynamic to some degree. Um, I wonder, too, 
can we learn and relearn? Like we're relearning or unlearning some of these things that we've done. Did we know then what we know now? And how could we maybe do a better job of it going forward? Martha, it's so great to have you on today because one of my conservation heroes is Ding Darling. He understood how these rivers function. He hunted and fished along the Missouri River, the Big Sioux River. And he wrote in a December 44 article in Outdoor Life about the impacts of these dams yet to come that we're all working with today. FDR's first appointment to what would become the Fish and Wildlife Service. I think about how important it is to provide that understanding, provide that sense of caring, that sense of wonder. One of the quotes from the 2011 flood I hold close is, humans will learn to live with rivers, but when? That is a question of time. So I think about how we in some way are connecting to Ding Darling, but literally to millions of years of evolution and what we can do better for these critters and for the people along the rivers. It's very palpable to me, Wayne, because I was just at Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge looking at the the damages from Hurricane Ian and uh, just how unbelievably devastating they were just to see it firsthand and to see how Fish and Wildlife Service staff and others responded in the wake of a disaster like that. And so if we can be channeling him, that's a good thing. As a person down here in Georgia on an Atlantic Slope drainage, I am fine loving the pallid surgeon, wanting to conserve it. My livelihood doesn't really involve these dams at all. I'm I'm basically trying to play devil's advocate and ask, okay, yes, we are still learning, but these dams are also serving a purpose that's helping humanity and our, our countrymen in some way. Going forward, what does it look like achieving those goals that those dams were originally put there for while also achieving this new goal of conserving and getting the pallid surgeon back to being able to naturally reproduce and survive in perpetuity? How, how do we achieve both? What does that really look like? Mm, I think that's a really good question. And I think that's the million dollar question that the Fish and Wildlife Service is always working on, right? Because in our mission statement, it starts in working with others and we are stewarding fish, plants, wildlife habitat for the species themselves, but also for the American people. Conservation is integrally intertwined with people. So when you get to these tough questions of dams, for example, I think, yes, we'll always be paying attention to what purpose do they serve, but some of these structures weren't designed in a way to achieve both their purpose and conservation. And I think we do know more now where you can design structures in a way that you can try to better achieve both and also probably better achieve the purpose they're built for. We just know more and we know these nature-based solutions designs can better achieve each of the purposes, including conservation. What is your hope for these fish in the next 50 to 100 years? What would you like to see if we were to step forward in time and take a look at where things are? 
I'd like to see them reproducing in the wild. I'd like to see them be able to migrate. I'd like to see those larval drifts happen. So what about you, Wayne? I want some young child to be able to cross this river and look into the muddy waters and wonder what's there and then have a career seeing everything that you just mentioned. They may not have to be working on that in the conservation way we are because we've done the right things for these fish into the future. We could be there in 50 years. It's a long-lived species, and ideally it's around. We talk about giving nature a chance. Let's give the dinosaur fish a chance. (laughs) Martha, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Just thanks for letting us be on this. I feel like I get to go tell my kids I was a rock star today for the fish. Just happy to be on. Thank you both. Wayne, certainly, but thank you, Guy and Katrina, for doing this and for giving the fish a voice. It's really fun to learn about them. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, We hope everyone gets out there and enjoys all the fish and let those rivers be themselves so the fish like pallid sturgeon can be themselves too. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.